see all of you guys, and uh, just a couple of quick housekeeping items before uh, we get rolling here. Uh, but, you know, if you're a post-collegian, uh, this coming Saturday, there's an event for you. It's called Prime Saturday Inn. Uh, and it's really just a time where, you know, Prime is growing. Uh, there's a lot of people. And so as a ministry grows, they're, they're just, you just need time to just be together and just to kind of collide and, and get to meet people and so forth. And so there's going to be board games, uh, video games, and snacks, and uh, uh, other good stuff. And so this is this coming Saturday, okay? So it's for you. Secondly, uh, we do have um, lunch break today. Uh, I'm just going to ignore that. Uh, we, we have lunch break today. And so please, you know, uh, I always, Chick-fil-A is closed. I'm sorry. But so just stay here. There's fried chicken and uh, get to, you know, meet some people and to say hello. All right? Hey, if you could take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 15. Acts 15. And you know, um, there's kind of an interesting story. It's a true story of a man who uh, roughly 20 years ago, uh, he he rented this movie uh, from this video store, which was built shortly after the pyramids were built called Blockbuster. And uh, he kind of encountered this problem because when it was time to uh, return this video, he realized that he had misplaced it. He could not find it. In fact, he could not find it for six weeks. And so the late charge would be about $40, but, but see, it gets worse because he would have to tell that to his wife. And that is very scary to say you have to pay $40 in late charges. And, and the movie that he had rented was, you know, Apollo 13. And so obligatory joke, Houston, he had a problem. Well, after this whole entire ordeal, uh, he found himself sitting and saying, there, there has got to be a better way to do this whole video thing. There has got to be a better way to return videos and so forth. And he started probing this, this kind of idea and what that led to through a series of events was that he would go on to become the co-founder of a business called Netflix. I share this with you because I think this is an interesting parable for all of us on how important it is to properly understand the nature of something, the essence of something, the, the inherent components within a certain idea. Because once we properly understand how maybe something works, it can have far-ranging implications. It can turn an industry upside down. And in fact, um, it was because this Reed Hastings, this man, uh, because he started probing the idea of how entertainment uh, movies can be transmitted, uh, it literally flipped the movie industry and, and film industry and entertainment kind of upside down, right? That's why today, arguably your go-to uh, mode of watching you know, movies and shows, it's probably through Netflix. And today in America, Blockbuster, there's only one left. And we'll see how much longer that lasts. You know, if you're joining us, I know I felt sad for saying that, but if you're joining us, uh, you know, our church, our, our theme this year is, is to be on mission. And what we're saying is, we're saying, God, we believe that you're moving in the world and it's, it's beyond just what we see. And so we want to be kind of tethered to what you're doing. And so we felt like the best book to study for that was the book of Acts. Well, the story that we're going to come into today, just to be honest, it, off first glance, it does not look like a book that really has anything to do with mission. To be honest, it's kind of a dry and boring story. But I would argue that this story may actually be one of the more important stories in the book of Acts as it pertains to mission. And the reason why is because this story, it, it probes and unpacks and, and causes us to really deal with the very nature 
and essence of the gospel, which is central to the core of Christianity and central to mission. Because the mission exists, not for the sake of the mission, the mission exists to display a message, the message about Jesus. And so we can do mission well, but if we get the message of the gospel wrong, then we do the mission wrong. See, like on the one hand, we can agree the gospel is very easy to understand. You can get the gospel right. Jesus died for your sins. He died to forgive you and to trust him and you get to go to heaven. Like that's right. But on the other end, it may be entirely possible to get the gospel in a subtle way wrong, where we blurry the gospel, where we make the gospel a little cloudy. And so the story that we're going to come into today is a demonstration of how this gospel, which seems to be so easy to get right, can be made blurry. And what we might discover is we are much more closer to this scenario than we might even care to admit. So what was the story? Look with me in Acts 15 verse 1. But some men, uh, they came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, they had no small dissension and debate with them. My translation, they yelled a lot. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that God had done uh, and, and declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, uh, they rose up, and they said, "It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses." Okay, so real quickly, what's going on here? Let's uh, briefly just kind of set the stage. So for the past. Uh, two chapters in Acts 13 and 14, it kind of details a 2.5 year period in which Paul was going and spreading the gospel in which scholars have deemed and coined as Paul's first missionary journey. And this first missionary journey in which he kind of traveled across, across certain places in the Mediterranean world was vastly and largely successful. Many people believe the message of Jesus. And of the demographic in which most people receive the gospel, it was uh, Gentiles or non-Jews. Now, we, we would think right from the get-go, like that, that's wonderful news that the gospel is spreading and, and the Gentiles are turning to faith. But for some, this, uh, the Gentiles kind of becoming God's people, it was problematic for them. Now, why? why? Why would it be problematic for certain people? Well, these people weren't just, they weren't any people, but they were first century Jews who believed Jesus. So they were first century Jewish Christians. So now, why would first century Jewish Christians find it problematic for Gentiles to also believe Jesus? Because wouldn't that be a good thing? So we, we have to try to understand kind of the, the, the framework of first century Jews. So first century Jews, they believed that their people, they were the people of God, that their ethnic group, the Israelites, they were the people of God. In fact, they believed that God had spoken to their fathers in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they had formed kind of this people who belonged to God and validated uh, this, this kind of corporate salvation through three things. First, a sign, a sign of male 
uh, circumcision. So you knew they were serious, according to Genesis 17, uh, that if, you had, if your males were circumcised, that, that, that was a sign. So a sign. Secondly, um, a code. A theocratic code of morals and ethics. 613 laws, which we understand as the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. And thirdly, a promise. A promise of this future messianic king who would come and vanquish all their political enemies. So in the minds of the Jews, they understood that if you belong to the people of God, you belong to them because you had the sign of circumcision, the code of the Mosaic law, and the promise of this future messianic king. And this is what they believed for thousands of years, that if you had these three things, you were the people of God. If you didn't have these three things, you were not the people of God. So you can imagine just how deeply it must have been in the very fiber of their mindset. So imagine how startling it must have been to be a first century Jew. And then you hear this this Jesus. He actually is this promised messianic king. And then he dies and rises again. And that work on the cross was a work to save sinners and and not just believing Jewish sinners, but even believing Gentile or non-Jewish sinners. I mean, that, that that would have been startling for them. Why? Because as far as they were concerned, the very categorical understanding of what it meant to belong to God, the very categorical uh kind of uh, parameters for what it meant to belong as the people of God was drastically shifting. See, it would have felt like for them that their very heritage, uh, their experiences, their culture, their traditions, it was all being kind of, it was like a rug that was being pulled from under them. We can understand uh, how startling this must have been for them. So how do you think a first century Jewish Christian would have naturally reacted to these Gentile Christians? Two ways. One, if they were selfish, they would have rejected them. They would have said, no, you Gentiles, you know, you, you get, there's no way you guys can, I don't care if you have the king, there's no way you could belong to the people of God. But if they were nice, if they were godly, here's what they would have done. They would have affirmed, but then created and called for assimilation. See, they would have said, okay, we, we affirm it. We affirm that you have number three. You, you have the same king as we do. Then you have to assimilate. If you take on number three, the future king, the promise, then you also have to take your number one and number two. You also have to get your male circumcised and you also have to take the theocratic code as well. It would have made perfect sense for these first century Jewish Christians to have created this type of assimilation. Now, now it, if you're sitting here and you're saying, what is he talking about? Let, let me try to kind of give us uh, some help here. Um, this summer, there was this historic moment that happened uh, in Southern California. Uh, this man by the name of LeBron James came to the Lakers. And... What was fascinating for me was that there were, there were kind of three different responses uh, from three different categories of people. So category one, you, you had casual fans. They were just happy. They were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. LeBron's going to make the Lakers better again. We got to go to the game and take our pastoral staff. And I, I, it's a wonderful idea, right? Because that that's category one. Here's category two. Category two was not casual fans. These were the diehard, true loyal fans. And they were happy too at first, but then uh, they started becoming self-righteous and kind of protective. They would say things like, um, if you weren't a part of Laker Nation, 
during the bad years, you don't get to be a part of this during the good years. Get out. They said things like, if you can't name five players during the mid-90s or five players during the mid-2000s, you don't belong to the Lakers circumcised nation party. Get out. That was group two. But here was group three. These were also true loyal Laker fans, but they were nice. They, they affirmed, but they called for an assimilation plan. Here's what they said. They said, okay, all are welcome. You guys can all, okay, we welcome you to Laker Nation. We just have one requirement. You have to respect Kobe Bryant. If you don't respect Kobe Bryant, we're gonna deface murals. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't do sports. Sports is stupid. And I would say, I totally agree. But even in something as trivial as sports, do you see the dynamic, the operating power of how heritage, tradition, in individual and corporate identity and uh, right, all these things play out in something as trivial as sports. These loyal Laker fans, they want to preserve their loyal. It's, it's just, it's dumb. Who cares? But if that kind of dynamic can exist in sports, certainly we can understand and sympathize with these Jews who have a 2000 year rich spiritual heritage in which for them, Belonging to God meant, yes, this king is yours, but you also have these other things. We understand why they would feel this way. In fact, uh, you know, in the story that we read, these Jewish Christians, they were the nice ones because they affirmed and called for assimilation. They were saying, fine, fine, you know, we can't deny you have the same king, but, you know, just make sure you get circumcised and, you know, take on the law of Moses. They were being nice. They were trying to do the right thing, at least in their minds. But here's the problem. In their pursuit of assimilation, in their pursuit of what I personally believe, they were trying to do the right noble thing. They were unknowingly doing something sinister, which is they were changing the nature of salvation. They were clouding, blurring what it meant to belong to the people of God. See, see, they were saying, it is not purely the work of Jesus received as grace through faith or trusting in Jesus. No, it's not purely the work of Jesus. It is partly the work of Jesus, even largely the work of Jesus and partially the work of something else, these other things. In other words, they were saying, if you wanna belong as the people of God, you need Jesus and Judaism in order to become the people of God. They were clouding and blurring the gospel. The essence of the gospel was made unclear. I I don't want us to miss the significance of this. Do you realize that from the moment Jesus died, rose again and ascended to this moment, it had only been 15 years? That's it, 15 years. In only 15 years, the gospel was already blurred. Like some of these apostles, they saw Jesus. They, They lived with Jesus. They saw Jesus hanging out with tax collectors, eating with prostitutes. They saw his risen body. Some of these Christians here, they, they, they were friends with full-time apostles writing Bible. And yet only 15 years later, the nature of the gospel was already starting to change in their minds. And here we are 2000 years later, and we somehow think that we can't potentially blur the gospel just a little bit. Just because we listened to one really good John Piper sermon 
Or just because we you know, read one Tim Keller book and we didn't even read all of it, we just read two chapters. We somehow think we're, in, we're totally invulnerable to the gospel being confusing and cloudy in our own minds. It is entirely possible for us to drag our own preferences, our life's experiences, our culture, our heritage, our traditions, even the good ones, even the right ones, in a way where we might blur and make cloudy the gospel. So let me uh, kind of get specific now, okay, and, and maybe talk about and have a conversation here about how this can show up and has shown up and for some of us in our lives. Uh, here's one blurry gospel, and this is the, the, the blurry gospel of Jesus and alcohol. So I need to, I need to set the stage here properly, okay? Um, we can agree that alcohol can be a good gift from God and can be a terrible, cruel master. Both are true. Uh, a New York Times study, uh, it published something where it said that one out of six people who drink regularly actually have a serious problem with alcohol. There was another study that said one out of 10 kids in a, who grew up in America, they grew up uh, in a how, house with alcohol abuse. There was a 2015 Pepperdine research that said one out of five pastors have an unhealthy reliance on alcohol. So alcohol can be a good gift from God and it can very easily become a cruel taskmaster. Now, with that being said, some of us, we, we, we know someone, they're no longer part of a church. And, and they, when you talk about church and stuff, there's like this kind of knee-jerk, volatile reaction. And here's why. Because they grew up in this spiritual church ethos in which what was communicated was that if you're going to be a Christian, you need to believe Jesus and never touch alcohol. And in fact, if you touch alcohol, like you don't even know Jesus. That was kind of the ethos. We know of someone who grew up in that kind of ethos. And so they're very bitter towards the church. And the reason why is because they had parents who fought like crazy all the time. They fought and yelled at each other every day. But when they went to church, they were deacons, very respected because they served hard and just never touched alcohol. And so for them, they grew disillusioned by the church. They were like, this is, a, this is confusing. It's not really about Jesus. It's about Jesus and somehow I'm not supposed to do that. And so a blurry gospel of Jesus and alcohol. How about the second one? How about the blurry gospel of Jesus and politics? Did you know that there are millennial aged people today who have vowed to never step into a church? And the reason why is because they grew up in households and church ethos where the allegiance to a certain political party seemed greater than allegiance to Jesus. To say yes to Jesus meant I had to vote Republican or to say yes to Jesus meant I had to vote Democrat. And so because of this confusion, there are millennia, or it could be, uh, the perception may have been wrong, but regardless, they have vowed, I'm never going to step into a church ever again. Blurry gospel of Jesus and politics. How about the blurry gospel of Jesus and health and wealth? Like we know about the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel is you have Jesus and riches. You get both, right? And, and it's being exported all over the world. But let's be honest. Some of us, we also grew up in the exact opposite, reverse ethos, where it's like, if you believe Jesus, you affirm poverty gospel. And so for some of us, we actually have a problem with affluent Christians. We're like, if you believe Jesus, you wouldn't drive that car. Do you really believe Jesus? And even ministering to affluent people, it's like, we feel like you need to sell everything right now, or otherwise you're just gonna walk away from you. Blurry gospel. How about this fourth one? The blurry gospel of Jesus and 
church attire. You know, I remember um, this one time, there was a, a long time ago, a certain ministry event. And um, this one particular individual came to this event and this person would not necessarily consider herself to be a Christian. But when this person came to the, 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 the ministry function, the kind of noise and stir among some of the leaders was, oh my gosh, look at, she's dressed so immodestly. She's gonna stumble all the guys because it's all her fault and not the Christian guys who should keep their eyes to themselves, right? And, and so someone said, uh, I, I'm gonna confront her. I'll, I'll talk to her. What a, what a confusing gospel it must've been for that person. Hey, here's a sweater. Did you know you can also be clothed by Christ's righteousness? Would you like both? What a confusing gospel. Now, don't hear, hear, hear me rightly. I affirm the importance of modesty, of course, but never as a requirement to believe in Jesus for his saving work to be transmitted and applied by grace through faith, as grace through faith. Is there a blurry gospel in some of our minds where it's not purely the work of Jesus, which we receive amazingly through faith and trust in Jesus' work alone? Or is there a gospel where it's partially the work of Jesus, but maybe partially some type of assimilation to some type of heritage and tradition, which may be good things, but not as a, requirement for salvation? You know, uh, by the way, I, I know no one here is going to stand up and say, oh my gosh, I believe in a partial gospel. I'm sorry. And I know no one's going to think that. But here's how maybe a good test for how maybe you can know you believe a, a blurry gospel is when you cannot rejoice in the salvation of someone else because of their, fail, of their failure to assimilate in the partial other that you affirm. So for example, like if, if you can really rejoice in someone because like, oh, you're a Democrat and you met Jesus, yay. But if someone of, the, of another party, there's less joy, that may be a sign of a blurry gospel. Or, or if someone's like, wait, so you, you believe Jesus, but you're still drinking, drinking occasionally, really? Like if there's less joy because of some other partial other that you feel like they have to assimilate immediately, that may be the sign of a blurry gospel. Because if it was purely the work of Jesus, wouldn't we rejoice? If, if the miracle of salvation was that we add nothing, nothing to our righteousness because Jesus does it on our behalf. If, if we really believe that, if anyone came to saving faith, wouldn't we rejoice? You know, we see that in the text. In the text, I don't know if you caught it, but when, when, the, uh, when Paul and Barnabas are going through Samaria and Phoenicia, it says that at the churches there, they, they, they gave the report of the Gentiles and they rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? Because they understood the nature of the gospel rightly. Who did not rejoice? The Christian Pharisees. Why? Because it was a blurry gospel. See, if the gospel is pure in our minds, then whoever meets Jesus, we shall rejoice. But if it's kind of blurry, there will be objections rather than rejoicing. Who in our lives? What types of people? What kinds of people do we maybe have some objections if God were to save them? because of the lack of assimilation on certain things that may even be good. See, Living Hope, I, I don't want us to, to miss this. You know, like I share the second service and I don't want to toot our own horn too much, but we are killing it <laughs> with on mission stuff. Like this summer, I, I am, I'm, I'm blown away by what, by what our church is doing. I, I, I feel 
privileged to be a part of all the stuff that we're doing with Honduras, and it's amazing. And we need to keep going and be on mission. But I'm just saying that in the midst of that, the fastest way to subvert the mission is to get the gospel kind of wrong. In fact, how about this? We could pursue mission 100%, but if we get the gospel wrong, just 1%. What is the mission? That's the wrong mission. See, it's imperative that we fight, we struggle to fight to get the gospel right. So, so how do we do that? How do we get the gospel right? Well, immediately after this, what we find is that uh, the early apostles and elders, they would actually gather together for the first ever conference for the gospel. It was a, go- it was a gospel conference. And what we find is that they proceed uh, through a certain way to fight for the right gospel. And what they do, I believe, gives us a template for us for how we can fight to get the gospel right. There are two things that we see. Here's the first way. The first way that we uh, fight to get the gospel right is by recognizing what God is doing in people. By recognizing the salvation that God is performing in people's lives. Meaning, we have to open our eyes and say, oh my goodness, that, that person got saved. I, I can't deny it. They have the Holy Spirit. We have to recognize that. In fact, that, that, that's, that's largely the discussion that we find at the Jerusalem council. Look with me in verse six. The apostles and the elders, they were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, again, a lot of yelling, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the the early days, now pay attention to how uh, he recognizes the other. uh, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord, um, Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So do, do you notice how Peter stands up and he says, hey, look, I was with Cornelius a couple of chapters ago. Yeah, God was saving people just like how he saved us through grace and faith, by grace through faith, he was doing the exact same thing. Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and do the exact same thing. They recognize the work of salvation that God was doing in their hearts. And that's why there is a complete silence. Here's why. Because sometimes when we begin to recognize something we don't see, we, it, we need to be silent in order to process the new reality. So we have to recognize like, oh, that young person, wow, met Jesus. That older person met Jesus. Oh, this person's political, yeah, that person. Oh, wow, this person, oh, a Laker fan met Jesus. A Celtics fan, okay, well, they met Jesus too. We have to recognize. And so if if you're sitting here and you you can't rejoice yet in someone's uh, salvation, then at least we can recognize through humble silence and process what God is doing. But the second way we can fight to get the gospel right is by remembering what God has said. Because here's why. Can we be honest? Sometimes, you know, like testimonies and stuff, feelings can only go so far. 
It can only go so far. There comes a point where those feelings run out. What do we do when those feelings run out? It's no longer about feelings, but us saying, God, you have decreed, you have proclaimed this truth in your word, and so I'm just going to submit to that, even if I don't feel it. That's what James, who was the key prominent leader in the early church, that's what he does. If you can look with me in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James, he replied, brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God first visited the, uh, the Gentiles to take from them a, a people for, him, for his name. And with this, the, the words of the prophets agree. In Amos 9, just as it is written after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment in light of scripture is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So yeah, he recognizes the works of God of salvation in people's lives, but then he remembers what God has said. He said, hey, God said he would do this. God said he would save every nation, tribe, and tongue, and culture, and subcultures, and cultures within subcultures, things that we may be uncomfortable with. This is what God has said. And here's what happens. Here's what's beautiful. Because they got the gospel right, the mission took flight. You know what happened after this? After this, Paul would enter his second and third missionary journeys and proclaim the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. These two missionary journeys were individually longer than even the first missionary journey. How about this? If the Jerusalem council got this wrong, would you and I even be here today? Would we even be sitting here proclaiming Jesus, praising Jesus and saying we need to go on? If they got this wrong, I don't even know if we would be here, but because they got the, because they got the gospel right, the mission took flight. Now, I don't want to um, romanticize this. This is difficult. You know, this fight to get the gospel right, the fighting, it, it is, it, it's hard. It's not a fighting amongst each other so much, but as it is internally, because it requires so much humility, right? So much denial of even certain preferences or, or things that we think are right, et cetera, so forth, right? It's hard. In fact, uh, I believe that for men that we just read about in this book, in this story, it was incredibly humbling for them to have done what they did. Uh, here's what I mean. So Peter, uh, you know how he stood up and he affirmed Paul? Some scholars believe that prior to this event was the event... Um, that was described in Galatians 2 because Peter kind of flip-flopped on certain uh, Gentile Christians. And so Paul, who was a lower-ranking apostle, called him out publicly. He rebuked him publicly in a shame-honor culture, which means chronologically, what we find here is Peter rising up and saying, hey, guys, you know, you know that guy who publicly shamed me a while ago? He's right. Listen to him. Like all of his accounts, we have to follow him. How incredibly humbling is that? How about this one? After this, Peter's role in the book of Acts, done. Done. No, it, Paul takes the gospel now. In fact, one uh, commentator says this, the legitimization of the mission to the Gentiles is Peter's last work. How humbling is this? What about James? You know, James, uh, he was viewed as kind of the prominent leader of the early church. And scholars, they guesstimate that James personally, even after salvation, adhered to the Mosaic law. 
not to gain salvation, but out of a response to his salvation. But what does he do here? He says, let's not trouble the Gentiles anymore. This is my declaration as as the key. I'm going to use my platform and say, this is what the gospel is. And in fact, if you read on, they write a letter and they publish it to all the churches. So what, what, what this is saying is James, the prominent leader of the church, uses his platform not to benefit his own preferences, but to deny his preferences that the gospel might advance. Incredible humility. We're all called to that. Now, now you, might, you might have been sitting here uh, during the sermon and saying, um, yeah, go Steve, go Bing, get all these you know, religious Pharisee Christians, pound them, pound them. I knew I could drink while I was growing up. I knew I could wear that, go after them. If you're sitting there and, and, and that's what you've been saying, like, I, I need you to know like, you're not off the hook either. None of us are off the hook. Jesus, the gospel is not about your liberty to do whatever you want. It is about your liberty to now serve everyone for the gospel. Everyone. See, see the, the gospel doesn't just free us so that we can live our lives however we want. It now frees us to serve however we can. If you read on in the story, James actually commands the Gentiles and says, okay, no Mosaic law fulfilled in Christ, but I want you to do certain things that are more socially sensitive to Jewish people. That's what he says. So is it okay for you to drink? I mean, yeah, it's not a sin for you to drink, but in certain contexts, arguably in most contexts, it might actually be more loving and of greater service for you to not drink. And that's a good thing. Can you wear that shirt? Yeah, it's not a sin for you to wear that, but maybe in certain contexts, like this coming Saturday, the prime singles hang out. No, okay, right? It might not be the best, wisest thing to wear that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. See, none of us are off the hook. Only Jesus and the gospel are off the hook from our tendency to blur it and change it and confuse it into something that is not true. But all of us, we are invited to great humility in light of an amazing gospel. See, isn't this what Jesus did for us? The radiant king of glory who sat in a throne in heaven, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross taking on the image of man, taking on human flesh. You know, he, he lived the Mosaic law perfectly on your behalf. Do you know that in Colossians 2, Paul describes Jesus' death on the cross as the circumcision of Christ, that that's how brutal his death was. It was a mutilation of the Son of God. Incredible humility. But yet when we fight to get the gospel right, the mission takes flight. You know, there's a, a story um, in Southern California, actually, that I believe kind of encapsulate this, encapsulates this whole idea. You know, uh, in kind of the mid-60s to early 70s, there was a pastor who pastored at uh, an area in Newport Beach. And during that time, uh, if you know anything about the kind of mid-60s to early 70s, it was the hippie movement, right? So a lot of young people, right, guys with long hairs, you know, don't shower for a year and uh, walk around barefoot, right, the hippie movement. And so uh, one, of, one of the accounts of this pastor's life was that initially when the pastor kind of saw these young people, he was like, what is wrong with these people? He was so angered by them. But in one exchange, uh, the, the pastor's wife said, you know, honey, they need Jesus. And for some reason that really convicted him, like, why was I missing 
God's heart, but you got it. And so this pastor family, this husband and wife duo, what they started doing was they would go to these areas and they would share the gospel with these young you know, hippies. And what started happening was uh, they were all being compelled to Jesus in, in, a, in kind of a non-ordinary way, right? And so they're all coming to their church to the point that they outgrew their facility and they had to move to another facility large enough to kind of accommodate all these people hearing the gospel. Now, as you can imagine, there probably were people who have been at the church for a long time and so forth. And they're, you know, it's not really comfortable suddenly worshiping with a young guy with long hair and he, you know, it's like something's weird and he's barefoot. You can imagine that's kind of uncomfortable, right? And so a certain noise began to uh, kind of, kind of uh, be churned up uh, in the church that you know, they're walking in barefoot, they're ruining the carpet. And there's a lot of versions to this story, but the most popular version to this story is that this pastor's response was, then let's get rid of the carpets. Let's just get rid of the carpets then. Because how can we let carpets, how can we allow certain church, even good things, hinder and be an obstacle to these young people who were being compelled and drawn to Jesus? You know who this pastor was? Uh, he's with the Lord now, but it was Pastor Chuck Smith. Some of us know. Uh, he was the pastor of the original uh, Calvary Chapel. And a lot of people look back today and say that as the hippie movement was going on, Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit responded with another movement called the Jesus Movement. And the hub of this Jesus Movement was Calvary Chapel. See, he got the gospel right. And that's why the mission took flight. Living Hope, you and I, we, we, are, we are saved purely by the work of Jesus through the cross. That's it. But in light of that, may it not be about our personal freedoms, but a greater freedom. Now be on mission as God is. Let's pray. Jesus, strengthen us and help us. You know, um, you know our hearts, you know our weaknesses, but we wanna come before you because we know that you're the loving father. You know us inside and out. And we know that you wanna continue to use us in this church to advance the gospel. And so to that end, would you continue to teach us, humble us, and give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen.